You're listening to America's Web Radio. And now time for the Classic Car Show with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and the Classic Car Show. And we've uh, got one missing in action. Mr. Weber is uh, up in New York, I believe, and uh, checking his baseball team or whatever, and his daughter and whatever else up there. But anyway, uh, we have, we're great to, it's, it's a delight to have Steve Ronaldo in, in the back. studio back. Um, we take a picture of him, and we just leave a picture in the chair. He's out on tour, uh, spreading the gospel of the classic car show for us, I'm sure. We have a very special guest today on America's Web Radio and the classic car show, uh, and uh, I am delighted to have him on. Uh, we, uh, My wife and I were up in Maine uh, back last uh, fall and enjoyed being up there and seeing some of the other museums. We, we missed... Uh, the Seal Cove Museum by about three weeks. They had shut down the first of November, the last of October, and um, we uh, hope to get back up to Maine before too long and uh, be able to see the museum. But we've we've got. I'm going to give his name out, but I'm not going to try the title. The title is is uh, is too long for this boy. But we've got Roberto Rodriguez on from Seal Cove. Museum, Auto Museum in Maine, and uh, Roberto was just giving us a weather report. The snow has melted, and it's a beautiful day in Maine. So, welcome to the Classic Car Show. Well, thank you so much, and good morning to you. Thank you, sir. And uh, I tell you, we we don't uh, hesitate to jump right into. Let's talk about your museum. Well, yeah, the and, museum is one of those wonderful little treasures. We're uh, on, located on Mount Desert Island. Uh, Mount Desert Island, for most folks, uh, folks, is best known because that's where Bar Harbor is and Acadia National Park. Um, if you can imagine this little island up on the uh, eastern, uh, northeastern side is, is this town of Bar Harbor. Mm-hmm. We're completely the opposite side of the island on what's referred to as the quiet side. The quiet side. In fact, uh, we're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Well, as I, as I recall being up there, you can't get there from here. You really have to sort of travel around in a big arc to go from Bar Harbor to uh, your museum. Well, you do indeed. Uh, when you're in the center of the museum uh, in the wonderful little town of uh, Somesville, established in the 1700s, uh, there's a road that kicks in there called the Pretty Marsh Road, and that's the way most people come to the museum is they just get on the Pretty Marsh Road and stay on it. And eventually, as you wind through this pretty countryside, uh, you come to the museum, kind of a nondescript-looking-building up on the top of a hill with a beautiful, commanding view of Seal Cove Pond, and people walk in the door, and their mouths just drop open, because we've got one of the rarest, most beautiful collection of really early American cars anywhere. Roberto we specialize in the brass era. Roberto, why did the and, and you said that he had the the founder of the museum had passed away? By the way, I have your uh, um, or I'm going to put it up right now. Your uh, website on um, our website and uh, there it is in full view, Seal Cove Auto Museum, and it's a beautiful, beautiful website that you all have. Um, why did the founder decide to, to uh, did he live there, or what was the reasoning of, well, of putting the museum there? Um, the founder was Richard C- 
Cushing Payne Jr. Um, Richard came from a, a fine old New England family. I think his great great great, however many back, was Treat Payne, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, grandfather uh, Elliot had been president of Harvard University. Uh, so a, a distinguished New England family. And Richard would come up to Mount Desert Island for his summers and uh, had an absolute passion for automobiles. Uh, some folks say that he started to, to uh, first collect in around 1947 when he would find uh, the remains of cars in barns and garages that have been part of the great estates uh, uh, here on the island uh, back when, uh, you know, Mount Desert Island, Bar Harbor, uh, was one of the destinations for the wealthiest families in America. Um, I like to think of Richard collecting in the 1950s, and the story I always love to tell is that, uh, like a lot of young men at the time, he, he wanted a really nice sports car. So 1955, if you were wealthy and wanted the sports car, there was only one car to have, and that was a Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Gullwing Coupe. Uh, when he called Max Hoffman, the distributor in New York, to ask about buying one, he was told that the only way he could get one then was if he became a dealer. So, of course, he did. He became a dealer and opened uh, the Seal Cove garage just down the road from where the museum is, and sure enough, he got his 300 SL plus a whole pile of other fabulous cars over the years. Uh, he was one of the first Saab dealers in New England. Uh, he even imported a little strange car from Germany called the Bogward. Uh, so he was able sure. to indulge his passion for sports cars and at the same time started to seriously collect the finest antique and classic cars he could find. Um, it probably all culminated in 1964 when he bought 41 automobiles in one fell swoop from a pioneer car collector by the name of Dr. Samuel Shear. And some of the very finest cars we've got in our museum were cars that Richard Payne had acquired from Dr. Shear. I'm just, uh, I'm just going through your collection on, uh, <clears throat> on your website. It is absolutely incredible. Uh, and I assume that's you in the uh, on the home page with the or about us page in the big white uh, classic car. Probably is yeah. I, I tend to crop up on a few pages there on on the website. If you find an old guy putting on a little bit of a pot, that's me. <laughs> well, it, it could be Steve or it could be me. You know. <laughs> oh, okay, I. Uh Let's talk a little bit about some of the brass cars you have. As uh, our regular people know, I'm a, I'm a very big brass car enthusiast. matter of fact, our next tour is the New England Brass and Gas. Do you do that one? Wonderful. No, we haven't started to actually go uh, with any of the cars on the tours yet. Um, I certainly know the, the tours. I've gone and visited and said hello to a number of people at them. But we, as a museum, haven't entered a car on a tour yet. We do show our cars uh, so we, we regularly go to the Amelia Island sure. we've had some of our cars at Pebble Beach in California and then we, we attend some of the more local shows uh, and concours like uh, the Boston Cup which is held on the Boston Common uh, the Misslewood Concour uh, events like that that and, we can get to fairly easily. Mr. Bear so Bear's annual round. Yeah, Mr. Bear's annual picnic and party at his house. <laughs> well, we uh, being of course a little bit privileged, we tend to uh, 
sometimes go up there and have more of a of a private viewing of, of Bob's collection. It's quite a collection. Uh, he's got a couple of cars there that once upon a time belonged to uh, Richard Payne, and probably the most famous one is uh, uh, one of the Packards in his collection, which is the uh, uh, referred to as the Car of the Dome, and that was one of Richard Payne's prizes a number of years ago. Well, what I'd like to do is, because your stuff is, is so unusual, the cars in your museum is to <clears throat> sort of, I, I know we can't, we don't have time to cover all 50. Uh, let's start with the one that is the most the, the most common, and then we'll go the other way, and the one that is the most unique in, uh, that you have, like I'm sure you might have a Model T in your collection. We've got a real nice collection of Model Ts, pretty well representative of uh the evolution of the Model T. So we start with uh, 1909. We have a very rare Model T from that period. Uh, it is what is referred to as a two-lever, two-lever two pedal. Sure. One of a hundred prototype uh, or first-run Model Ts that were made before they went into full production with uh, the three pedals that most people know about. So we start with that one, and and uh, we end uh, uh, right in 1927. Uh, so we've got a really nice display of, of Model Ts, and you can absolutely, as you walk down the row, see that evolution as the years go by, as the Model T became more simple each year, and the price continued to drop each year. Sure. I have a 10 mother-in-law car that we take on a lot of tours. What's that? What was that? Mother, a mother-in-law T, the, the, the commercial runabout. The, yeah. That's what I have. I have a 10 Model T. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Absolutely terrific. Yeah, they're, they're, great, they're great cars. And good for you for mastering that uh, three-pedal shuffle. Oh, it's I, easy. I just cannot get it straight at all. I keep trying to push that metal middle pedal and throwing the car into reverse and embarrass well, myself. I have I have to do that to stop sometimes. There you go, yes. <laughs> touch, touch the reverse pedal. Now, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum and... and which one would you would you value as the most unique or the most prized possession? Well, um, in value, there is a a wooden-bodied uh, or mahogany-bodied uh, 1913 Peugeot uh, with the coachwork done by Henri Labordet. I, I believe uh, I've got it up on your website right now. <clears throat> or I had it up on your website. Uh, yeah, I've got it up on your website right now. So it's it's as you can see it's shaped like a, a boat or a skiff, and uh, you know that was the common name given to them. Uh, Henri Labordet was probably back in his day uh, one of the most respected uh, coach builders uh, anywhere in the world, and uh, uh, he specialized in doing these uh, skiff-bodied cars. So uh, that's the one that most people choose as their favorite when they visit the museum. Uh, just because it's so absolutely spectacular, uh, it's a car that uh, has become kind of our goodwill ambassador. Uh, it's been shown at, at Pebble Beach. It's been shown at Amelia Island. And a few years ago, we uh, had the, the fun of sending it all the way over to uh, Paris, France, for the uh, Retromobile. Yeah, that's uh, quite that a show. It's held in the Grand Palais. So it gets around and it's represented the museum uh, uh, beautifully. But... It's not my favorite car. No. Okay. What's yours? Ah, well, we have uh, a very, very, very rare car that's 
known as an FRP. And FRP stands for Findlay Robertson Porter. So Findlay Robertson Porter was the chief engineer at the Mercer Company and developed their famous engine. He ends up getting into a fight with the management of the Mercer Company and resigns, storms out of their company, and goes and he buys a little factory with the idea that he's going to build his own automobile. And so he goes into production, and to make a very long story short, he produces about 12 of these magnificent, fast touring cars before the outbreak of World War I. The war comes along. Finley Robertson Porter is such an important engineer that he's kind of seconded by the government to design aircraft engines for the war effort. At the end of the war, goes back to his factory, but the world had kind of changed, and these very expensive cars that took a long time to produce uh, just weren't as popular as they'd been pre-war. And he's got other interests and other contracts, and so he really doesn't go back into production. So only 12 of these FRPs have ever been built. Now, we skip forward into the 1960s, and uh, for all the old-timers, uh, they've heard, of course, of the famous Harris Museum in Reno, yeah. Nevada. Yes, Back sir. Back that, that time, Harris was the greatest car museum, bar none, in the world. Best research facilities, best restoration shops. I think I've heard sometimes that Harris had upwards of 2,000 cars in his collection. Well, turns out that the car that Bill Harrow wanted more than any other car was the FRP. And he sent his buyers out across the country to get it, to find one for him. And sure enough, they find a Mr. Bowditch in Chicago who had an FRP and the parts for a second one. Now, within the collecting world, people knew that Bowditch had the car. And if there ever had been an article about it when Mr. Bowditch owned it, it always ended by saying, and Mr. Bowditch has no intention of ever selling it. But Bill Harris' buyers show up at his door and uh, made him an offer he just couldn't refuse. Yeah. Uh, Roberto, I'm going to have to stop you there. We've got to take a break. Uh, you're listening to America's Web Radio. We'll be back with Roberto Rodriguez from Seal Cove Auto Museum in Maine. We'll be back right after this. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy. Only on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. 
just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Today we've got as our very special guest Roberto Rodriguez, and he's with and at the Seal Cove Auto Museum on Mount Desert Island, Maine. And it's far from a desert. But anyway, it's a beautiful area, and uh, we're having a good time. Steve Ronaldo's here asking the the hardball questions, and Roberto's... uh, beating us to death with the great answers. <laughs> hmm. Well, let me just quickly conclude, if I may, that sure. little story about the uh, Finley Robertson Porter, the FRP. Um, Bill Harris uh, buyers find it in Chicago and make an offer to the owner, Mr. Bowditch. Uh, it was a huge cash offer at the time, and uh, Mr. Bowditch, who'd wanted to keep the car for his son, decided in light of the fortune that was offered for it to uh, sell it to uh, Bill Harrah. And so the car ends up at the Harrah's Museum uh, on display, uh, beautifully restored in his shops. But it wasn't that long after uh, Bill Harrah acquired the car that he died. And uh, amazingly, he left no instructions as to what was supposed to happen to his car collection. Yes, I know. And shortly after his passing... uh, a number of the cars were sold off, including the FRP. It eventually made its way to the Collier family at the Revs Institute in Florida, and a few years back, the uh, Colliers very, very kindly donated it to the Seal Cove Auto Museum. And as I say, it's my absolute favorite car here. It's just so beautiful with green fenders and red wire wheels and a cream body and this gorgeous body uh, style on it. Plus, it'll do a good 80 miles an hour. It's so a it's, really it, cool car. It's a big six, then. That's it. It's a, it's a big six-cylinder car. It's an absolutely magnificent automobile, yeah. Uh, Roberto, out of your collection, and, and Steve is big on this, uh, how many do you, do you all take out and exercise, and uh, how many uh, hit the road and, and go on uh, parades or whatever? And uh, then also, do you all do your own restoration? Well, I tell you, we, uh, we have a staff mechanic uh, and a group of volunteers. Uh, they get together on Tuesdays, so they're known as the Tuesday Tinkerers. <laughs> and the objective is to slowly but surely go through the collection, pick one or two cars a year, and get them running again. The cars have basically been sitting in this building since the 1960s when Richard Payne was acquiring them and haven't been started or exercised at least since then and many of them hadn't been run for years before that. So it's a wonderful challenge, not only for the tinkerers, a great demonstration for our visiting public to see the guys working on the car and of course the most exciting thing in the world when one of them comes back to life again. So I guess now out of the 55, 60 cars in the collection, we've got maybe 13, 14 of them uh, running again. And those cars, are once we get them running, we can use them then, depending on what car they are, in parades, local events, 
to give rides to kids in, to give rides to adults in, and for the most spectacular ones, to take them to car shows and Concordia Legas. Like you take a car to Hershey every year to down to the big big meet at Hershey. Uh, well, actually, the the current president of the board of directors of the museum, because of course we're a, a nonprofit with a board. Um, he uh, goes down dutifully every year to Hershey and has a tent. Uh, we're usually set up in the chocolate field, and uh, we uh, we love to welcome visitors to it. We we haven't shown at Hershey yet. That's one of the shows we we might well consider going down to. Yeah, uh, that that uh, I've gone since I was a little kid with. Then, uh, uh, other than the military and college, I probably I haven't missed many years. I can tell you. Uh, I kind of kind of interesting. Uh, all of your cars are are uh, uh, brassier, right? You said. Well, not not all. Uh, heck, the the baby in the collection is a uh, a Model A Ford Huckster uh, that was given to us uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but the focus of the collection are brassier cars, uh, especially ones with a a New England uh, connection or provenance. And you'd asked also about restoration. I'll tell you, we don't restore. Uh, we get them running again, and we maintain them. Uh, but uh, the cars are in the condition that Richard Payne found them and acquired them. So we have some cars that are absolutely preservation class, 100% unrestored original cars to some that had been restored by people like Dr. Samuel Shear in the 1960s. An interesting mix. Sure, that's cool. That's becoming, and I think you would agree with me, the unrestored cars are becoming, uh, I think that's where the hobby's going, because we had, I'm sure you, 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 you met Fred Simeone, and he's leading this thing uh, across the country that they're only original once, and, and more and more people are just trying to, to preserve the originality of the cars as opposed to a full frame-off restoration. And uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I love Dr. Simeon's philosophy, and uh, it's not just the, the preserving the originality, but also the fact that, you know, so many of his fabulous cars are started up and run and uh, fired yes, up and demonstrated to the public. <laughs> every week. And you mentioned Borgward. Now, you've got to have a, an Isabella Coupe in your collection. <laughs> I wish we did. No, uh, let's say... Uh, well, we, we kind of finish off with that uh, Model A Ford Huckster, but uh, I've got pictures, of course, of uh, the Isabella Coupes and uh, some of the wonderful cars that Richard did have uh, when he ran the, the Seal Cove uh, garage. Yeah, because nobody knows, only real car people know Borgward. <laughs> That's a very unusual, unusual car. Um, indeed, indeed. Do you have any, the, any cars like Thomas Flyers, Big Thomases, or any of that yeah, kind of stuff? Uh, we, we have, we have a, a, a beautiful Thomas Flyer here and uh, gives us a chance uh, not only to show this fabulous car, but also obviously because it's a Thomas Flyer, uh, tell the story about the, uh, the, the great, race. great Race in 1908. And, uh, uh, you know, our, our younger visitors just love the idea of these, the, this intrepid, that gentleman oh, it's a gentleman off story. across the country in, in the great race and uh, all of the adventures that they, they had going from uh, New York to Paris. Do you know, by any chance, Jeff Maul, the, the great-grandson grand, of... of uh, um... I do indeed. Uh, 
we had the great pleasure of inviting Jeff to the museum a few years back, and uh, for obvious reasons, that was probably the most uh, well-attended and fabulous uh, talk that's ever been given here. Uh, when Jeff uh, uh, suddenly became his grandfather, yes, isn't that uh, wonderful? That persona and started to tell the story of the great race. By gosh, you could have dropped a pin in yes, here. It was and, fabulous. And he's doing another one now. Because uh, because his great grandfather also did some of the first Glidden's, and he's got a new program now about the Glidden tours. Wonderful, we've got some great Glidden cars here. <laughs> so that's that's the perfect excuse to invite him back. Oh, if we needed an excuse, he's wonderful. Yes, he's uh, a nice love to man. Get him back up here to give another yeah, talk. Yeah, have him do have him do the Glidden program uh, <coughs> and 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 stuff. I worked with Jeff on a couple of the, his uh, great race thing but uh, uh, he's an exceptionally exceptionally nice guy and, and he makes like you said when he becomes George Schuster his great grandfather it's just phenomenal it's absolutely extraordinary yeah. we've been One where he's at yeah thousands of people and you could hear a pin drop everybody's just looking and saying you gotta be kidding me with this you know <laughs> Roberto let's take a, a quick tour and we'll start it and then we'll take a break and uh, finish it but uh, I'm at your front door so can you give me sort of a, a, a brief uh, audio tour I know you all have a shop uh, Steve also lets me ask one question and that is uh how many weddings have you had at the museum? <laughs> we are just starting to get into uh, uh, renting out the facilities, and to date we've had one wedding at the museum. Um, but, you know, we're open to it if somebody wants to consider uh, coming here to have their wedding. Um, you know, as you walk in the door, as I say, you've come up to a rather nondescript uh, steel building. Uh, you walk in the front door, and what you are immediately confronted with is gleaming floors, uh, wonderful lighting, uh, beautiful displays, and the first car that you see uh, is a 1912 Maxwell. Um, of course, we can tell a little bit of the stories about Jack Benny and Maxwell. Oh, yes. And um, yeah. You're also confronted immediately with a an incredible uh, ball constrictor bulb horn and uh, some beautiful brass carbide lights just to add a little bit of, of glitter and gleam. What is kind of unique about our museum is that we we use a thematic approach here. We're much more like a traditional museum in which we're telling a story and we use the automobiles and our motorcycle collection to illustrate that story. And in this case, the, the, the theme is motoring into the 20th century, the dawn of the auto age, and what we're looking at and interpreting here is really the industrial history of America. So one of the very first cars that you see as you actually enter the exhibit, you've gone past the Maxwell, is a 1904 Pope Hartford. And here we've got a chance to tell the story of Colonel Pope and how he... He, he sees uh, high-wheel bicycles in England and how he wants to manufacture those and comes to the United States and looks for a factory where he can make uh, these bicycles and ends up at a factory that's making the weed sewing machine. The trick here is that that factory had the precision machine tools that could be making sewing machines but also bicycles. 
And where did those precision machine tools come from? Well, prior to making the weed sewing machine, the factory had made the Sharps rifle for the Civil War. Wow. And that was typical in New England. You had all of these little factories that had geared up to make guns for the Civil War and had purchased the very finest machine tools. Once the war ended and the demand for guns dropped off, these little shops diversified and started to make these wonderful new consumer products that started to show up. Mm -hmm. Sewing machines, typewriters, watches, bicycles, and ultimately automobiles. Roberto, i got to stop the tour there and take a hard yep. break. We'll be back with Roberto Rodriguez from the Seal Cove Auto Museum right after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we're back on the Classic Car Show with Steve Ronaldo and our special guest today from all the way from Maine, uh, Mr. Roberto Rodriguez with the Seal Cove Auto Museum. And uh, Roberto's giving us a, a brief tour, and uh, we'll ask you to continue it. Well, thank you. Well, you know, just carrying on with that theme of uh, uh, gun-making uh, precision machine tools leading to automobile production... Uh, one of the cars we've got on display uh, is a 1909 Stevens Durier. Uh, so, again, here is the marriage of automobile making and uh, gun making. Uh, right beside the car there is a Stevens SureShot 22, mm -hmm. uh, made just about the same year, 1909, as the, uh, the car. So here is the marriage between Durier and the Stevens uh, uh, Arms and Tool Company, uh, where they could produce these magnificent automobiles. And the key, again, was having the precision machine tools in place. You don't have an extra cylinder for a Stevens Durier. A friend of mine just croaked one on the tour. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> They're a beautiful automobile, and actually the Stevens Durier that we have uh, is a car that is slated uh, uh, probably for next year to go into the uh, garage for the Tuesday Tinkerers to work on and uh, get going. As I go down the line a little bit further, and I'm going past 
some really early automobiles at the Dion Bouton, uh, uh, 1907 Holtzman. Uh, boy, when you look at that Holtzman, you sure can see where they, the term horseless carriage came from. Uh, you could just imagine a horse hitched up to the front of it. Uh, it's got that real carriage look. But about midway down the museum, uh, we come into a section that looks at the various modes of power in those early days. Everybody knows about gasoline cars, but I wonder how many youngsters today realize that electric cars were huge back in the early days. In fact, certain times they actually outsold gasoline-powered cars, marketed primarily to women, um, absolutely wonderful little automobiles, and we have two of them here at the museum, a Roush and Lang, uh, which we got running for the first time just a couple of days ago, and we also have a Kimball. Now, the Kimball is a very rare car. Uh, in fact, uh, as far as we know, this is the only Kimball in existence. It was made in 1913. Kimball was a well-known coach and carriage uh, maker, uh, and for a couple of years, uh, they made electric cars. And as I say, I think we've got the only Kimball that uh, still exists. I, I, I've got to ask. What kind of batteries and how were they recharged, and what did you replace them with today? Well, today we, in the Russian Lang, we've uh, used, I think, five 12-volt batteries. Uh, back in the day, it would have been banks of smaller batteries. Um, and a machine that looked like something out of an old Frankenstein movie uh, with gauges and switches and dials on it that you would have had down in the, the basement or the cellar of your home. Now, folks got to remember that back in in the teens it was mostly wealthy folks that owned automobiles they were expensive and so uh with something like the electric car um once you got home with it um your servants would take all of the batteries out they'd lug them down into the cellar they'd hook it up it would get charged up they'd lug them back upstairs put them in the car and then uh, in the morning the lady of the house would have her little elegant electric car ready for her to drive about 30-odd miles before it would have to come home and get recharged. But, you know, the technology was there. And we think electric cars are something brand new. Not at all. They were popular and uh, all over the place back in the early teens. And so were steam cars. And we have an absolutely beautiful collection of uh, steam cars. Uh, Locomobile, Stanley's, uh, a white steamer, and uh, a very interesting little car known as a Skeen, uh, which was manufactured in Lewiston, Maine, in 1900. No, I never heard of that one. I've heard all the other ones, but <laughs> I have a good friend here in Atlanta that's a big steam car guy. He's hosted the national convention twice, and they're just cool to ride in. They are indeed, and uh, uh, we've got our Tuesday tinkerers who really specialize in the gasoline cars uh, uh, now we're just getting together a new group uh, which will be known as the steam team uh, who will work on and uh, run our our steam power well, cars be sure they subscribe to plumber's supply they're going <laughs> to need 18 million valves and pipes and who knows what and you sit on top of pressurized tanks with uh, gas and, and uh, 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 
uh, coal uh, fuel in them and uh, and a boiler in front of you that's running at the <laughs> yeah. same pressures. Yeah, they're great cars. <laughs> you know that guy, obviously, in, in Melvin Village and Lake Winnipesaukee area that's the steam car expert up there. I can't think of his name, but... Well, we're, we're of course, also very lucky in the state of Maine uh, that uh, the Stanley Museum is here because uh, the Stanley uh, brothers uh, were born in Maine and their family home uh, is a museum in Kingfield, Maine, and uh, the really? I didn't museum know that. has a fine collection of Stanleys, and actually there are go-to people to help us with our, our steam cars. Cool. That's wonderful. Obviously, um, we all know that Maine has some rather uh, severe winters, and, and you, you all open uh, in on May 1st, and then you close uh, October 31st. It, 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 do you keep the you keep the your uh, museum winterized, or and is there any effect on the cars at all during uh, the the tough winters? Well, we close to the public, um, and uh, uh, have to realize that Mount Desert Island is a tourist destination. It's absolutely amazing. After the uh, the end of October, uh, you could fire a cannon off in Bar Harbor and not hit anything. <laughs> well, just a couple of months before that. You could have barely moved in Bar Harbor. Um, so we're very seasonally driven. But as far as the museum is concerned, we will lower the temperature uh, so nothing will freeze. But we also are here usually working on a car. And that's because Amelia Island is in March, and we got to get a car ready to be picked up and taken down to Florida for uh, the Amelia Island concourse. So there usually is a team here working off and on during the winter getting that car ready even through the 20 feet of snow even through the 20 feet of snow yep <laughs> yep uh, the snow plow guy is a good friend <laughs> okay okay so we're <coughs> we, we've uh, we've gone through the museum i know you have a gift store do you also have a uh, restaurant or anything like that um no along no, with we're, we're a small museum uh you know, we've got a coffee maker, and uh, thank heaven. <laughs> and we also have got, you know, some snacks uh, for our visitors here if they want them, uh, you know, candy bars and power bars and that kind of stuff. A uh, nice little gift shop, uh, but the real focus is on uh, the cars and uh, the interpretation here and making our visitors just feel as welcome as, and as special as they possibly can. Um. Let me ask you a, a, a question. This is this this as I've gotten older tends to be one of the things that I'm most concerned about is the future of, of this hobby and getting younger people and I'm not just mentioning, you know, talking about Boy Scouts, but getting younger people involved in this so I you know I really have a, a real deep concern for where this hobby is going to be these old cars in a few years do you do any special programs to you try know, we share the concern and obviously realize that um, uh, if we can get today's youth interested in the in the museum uh, wonderful that they'll they'll keep coming and uh, hopefully this becomes a special place not only for them to have fun but to to learn. Uh, we have a lot of children's programs. We, we really do encourage that, uh, everything from, uh, you know, just reading stories to uh, uh, very small children uh, up to programs that uh, appeal to high school kids. 
one of the most popular programs we do uh, is Lego Day. We've got piles and piles and piles of Lego here, and uh, the kids can come look at a car and then build their own Lego creations, which we then put on display. In fact, I'm standing in front of the uh, the Lego uh, display right now, and <laughs> some of these kids are clever, uh, really creative. Um, We've got a little advantage here on Mount Desert Island with kids in that part of the history of the island going back to around 1908, 1909, was that cars were banned on Mount Desert Island. You know, the wealthy families that used to come up here, the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and the Vanderbilts and so on, they used to come up to what they would call Eden. That was the old name for Bar Harbor. And... They wanted to come up here and escape the noise and pollution of the city. And so they used their power and influence to ban automobiles. Obviously, the local folks, especially the ones who worked the one end of the island and had to go all the way to the other to uh, work for, these, for, the, for the wealthy families, well, they wanted cars. And so that period of time, which lasted up until 1915, is referred to as the Car Wars. It's a wonderful story, all sorts of cool people involved with it, and it's taught at school here. So one of the interpretations that we do with children when they come to the museum is the car war story, and we're very lucky to have a few parts and pieces left from a car that had been built by three teenage boys in Bar Harbor in 1908, <laughs> and that was part of that car war story. Great story. <laughs> That's just a dynamite story. Well, one of the questions we always ask, too, is, uh, and, and since you've been there for 15 years, basically, uh, we're going along with what Steve said is getting younger folks interested. You've got to have one great story from a grandfather talking to his grandchildren about, and I'll let you finish out after the about. Primarily, it would be a Model T. And it is often stories about cranking a car. Kids just seem to be fascinated by the idea that you have to turn a crank. And Granddad just loves to tell them about pulling the old Model T out of the garage and how he'd have to crank it to get it going. Uh, my dad. And my dad had a story about how it could go through the snow. That yeah. was another thing they used to they tell the kids about is how amazing they were going through mud and snow. Um, as I started to say, my dad had a story about cranking uh, the cars, and that uh, uh, one of the things that's left out about cranking a car is how many wrists and uh, forearms were broken when the crank would come back and whip back and and uh, get you in the arm. Exactly. Exactly. And what a nice segue then for us to be able to then talk about Mr. Kettering and yes. uh, the self-starter. It's a great story. Let's. Uh, I tell you what. Let's take a break right quick, and when we come back, we'll. Uh, can you re- relate that story to us? Hi, my name is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, talking to you about antique car insurance. Uh, in this hobby uh, that I've been part of for years, not all insurance companies and insurance coverage is the same. I would suggest that you call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com to find out some information about some of the best antique car insurance you can get, such 
as agreed value uh, insurance for your classic car. Again, if you're when you get ready to to uh, insure your classic classic antique or even your street ride, call J.C. Taylor Insurance or visit jctaylor.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the Classic Car Show. This is a very special day. Uh, We've got Roberto Rodriguez on uh, the line with us from the Seal Cove Auto Museum up in Desert Island, Maine. And, um, you know, the, the fun part about this is our guests that we've had, Steve, you, we always learn something. Yes, and you, you do. You've been in the hobby for years and years and years, and uh, uh, it's just it's fascinating. And we appreciate uh, Roberto giving up his early Saturday morning and uh, only having three-quarters of a cup of coffee to join us. But... Uh, it's well worth it, Roberto, and we do thank you for it. Well, I thank you. I'm having a ball. Good. So uh, you had a story started, I think. Well, we were we were talking about Mr. Kettering and uh, the self-starter. Um, you have to imagine one of the reasons, for instance, that electric cars were so popular and marketed to women was that cranking a car wasn't easy. Uh, and people did break their wrist when that crank would kick back. So um, the development of the self-starter was a huge breakthrough, and uh, I was just hearing a wonderful story uh, uh, from you all about uh, Mr. Kettering going to Henry Ford and offering uh, the idea of the the self-starter and kind of being turned down by old Henry, who didn't think women should drive. Uh, And uh, what happens then is that uh, Kettering ends up going to uh, uh, General Motors, and uh, the Cadillac division, and uh, talks them into uh, uh, putting a self-starter in the Cadillac. And I think it was 1912 was the the first application of a starter uh, in a Cadillac automobile. And that, again, started to change everything, because once you could start it with a self-starter, it became something that a woman could start easily. And interestingly, that was the beginning of the decline of the electric car, now a woman could have a Model T or whatever as long as it had the self-starter. Now, was that self-starter sort of like the old uh, dimmer switch uh, that I remember in cars? But was it, wasn't the starter down on the floor and you did it with your foot? Uh, uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Big, absolutely. Really big yeah, switch. I, you get that wonderful kind of whirring sound <laughs> when you when you when you hit that starter and then eventually bang, you know, the engine catches. Who, who was the lady that went across the country first? Well, I can't think of her name. Well, I think one of the women who uh, was a pioneer here in the country was uh, uh, Alice Ramsey. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. And she went across the country in a Maxwell. Exactly. And you know, she had to have a man with they had to have another a man with because she couldn't crank the Maxwell. 
That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But you know, the real pioneer uh, was way before that, and that was Bertha Benz, the wife of uh, Carl Benz, uh, who in uh, 1896 uh, basically <laughs> took one of the cars out of the, the garage uh, w- without her husband's knowledge and drove 100 kilometers uh, from her, her home to visit her mother. Uh, and that was the first long-distance journey ever taken in a car uh, and also led to huge publicity and really kick-started uh, the Benz Motor Company. Yes, and their, da- and their daughter's name was? Well, that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, major investor in the uh, Daimler company was a Mr. Jelnick, and his daughter was Mercedes. And when uh, the True. company of Daimler merged with uh, uh, with Benz, uh, of course, that was the birth of Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, cool. i got to tell you, um, uh, I, I love to think about our hobby, and uh, I'm right now, as I walk around the museum, I'm standing in front of uh, a film that we loop here, which is one of the most wonderful little films I've ever seen. It is a color movie taken in 1939 of the very first meet of the Veteran Motor Car Club of America at a place called Raceland in Massachusetts. 1939. So that really is kind of the beginning of our hobby. And I'm looking at this movie, and by gosh, Ralph De Palma is in it, racing his Mercedes-Benz around the track. One of the Stanley brothers is still alive. They're driving these incredible cars that today are worth a fortune. And I'm looking at this thing and saying, holy cow. And then I realize, yeah, but that car is only 39 years old. (laughs) It's an absolutely amazing film. And one of the fun things is how much the guys had with their cars back then. You know, today we go to a car show and we line them up beautifully on a field and we sit beside the car and we tell visitors and, you know, uh, spectators about them. But back in 39, they were doing all sorts of stunts with their cars. And they drove uh, them. They, they, they had an absolute ball with them. Sure, sure. Like the old Glidden Tours, if, if, if there was a Glidden Tour, we'll say in St. Louis... Uh, people from New England or from Florida or wherever would drive their old car to to St. Louis and then do a seven-day Glidden tour and drive home. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) No car trailers. (laughs) One of my favorite, again, uh, the FRP in the collection is my favorite, but another uh, one that ranks right up there is an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous uh, American Underslung. Oh, yes. uh, uh, what's fun about the car is that uh, it uh, it belonged to uh, Isabel Well Perkins Anderson, who was the wife of Lars Anderson. <laughs> you know, many of the listeners will know that in Brookline, Massachusetts, Boston, there's the Lars Anderson Automobile Museum. It's the longest uh, continuously operating car museum in the United States. And they've got a collection of the Lars Anderson cars, except for this one, which we have. Uh, the Underslung uh, was purchased by Briggs Swift Cunningham in 1948 uh, from Mrs. Anderson, the year before she passed away. And uh, uh, when Briggs first got the car, he competed in any number of those early Glidden tours, at least the Glidden tour revivals in the 1940s. I've got wonderful photographs in the archives here of 
of Cunningham with his wife sitting beside him, uh, driving our underslung in uh, in the Glidden tour. He had a great museum too. Yeah, R- Roberto, you you forced me to ask this question. Uh, <clears throat> you like Steve uh, are the Wikipedia of classic cars. What got you interested in them? Well, you know, I like to tell folks that I've been interested in cars longer than I've been involved with museums. Um, it started for me in uh, about 1955. Uh, I was in, back then living with my parents in uh, Santiago, Chile, and uh, when we would go on Sundays to the golf club, my day was spent waiting in the parking lot for three cars to show up. A fellow in the U.S. Embassy who had just gotten a brand-new 55 T-Bird, Mm, yeah. uh, a fellow by the name of Tata Gelona, who was a famous playboy and had a BMW 507, and Mr. Gildemeister, who ran the Mercedes-Benz dealership, who had a gold wing. And they would race from Santiago to the golf club, <laughs> and who, you know... Uh, I would bet on the Mercedes. ...got their first bought rounds for everybody, and <laughs> I would wait in that parking lot for those cars to come, and that's what really got me started. Amazing story, and, and a little bit of your bio after that? Well, um, back and forth, my dad was a, a Chilean diplomat, that's where the Rodriguez names comes from. My mother was a Washingtonian, and uh, dad had a, an interesting career, uh, mostly uh, between Chile and the United States. Uh, uh, he held every position in the uh, embassy from uh, third secretary uh, to 1957 when he was named uh, Chile's ambassador to the United States. Uh, and so, you know, back and forth between Chile and Canada, and then a very long stint in Canada. Uh, we were posted to Ottawa for eight years, and I have the pleasure of being a, a dual national uh, Canadian and American. And then I got involved with museums, and that's been my career nearly my whole life has been working for different museums in Canada and the United States. And uh, uh, what fun for me to finally, here at the end of my career, <laughs> find a way of mixing my passion for automobiles uh, with uh, uh, with a museum. Couldn't be better. Let me. You've obviously been to many, many of the museums and, and know a lot of the curators and the people involved across the United States. How do we compare with Canada? Um, golly, uh, Probably favorably. Um, the difference being that uh, small museums, which are struggling in the United States, uh, funding, insurance, staff is becoming increasingly difficult. You have to imagine uh, for a small car museum, for instance, um, 10, 15,000 visitors a year, if you're lucky, you can't even begin to pay. Uh, salaries with the admission. So unless you've got an endowment, uh, uh, you're in real trouble. And we're seeing that happen. You know, smaller museums are closing uh, across the country. Uh, gosh, we had a great little museum down in Wells, Maine. Uh, Mr. Gould had opened it a number of years ago. Uh, when he passed away, his widow tried to keep it going. Uh, but, you know, uh, it became harder and harder. And uh, the Wells Auto Museum closed its doors for good a few years ago. Yeah, I, I call it. We've got an endowment, and we can keep going. But, you know, this happens a lot. Uh, and a difference in Canada is that 
provincial governments up there and federal governments tend to uh, financially support uh, uh, smaller museums to a greater extent. It's easier to get grant money to keep the doors open. So the museums I ran in, in Canada, um, I was, you know, always on the lookout for funding, but found it a little easier to get than I do here in the in the states. You know, I, I I've got to uh, <clears throat> somewhat chastise the museums across the country in that I I couldn't tell you how many times I've talked to museums and the curators and so forth, and. Uh, you know, ask them about their advertising and what we found that there are a lot of folks that don't even know the classic car museum exists and it might be next door to them. Well, that happens a lot. Sure. And, you know, <laughs> what a shame because for classic car museums, I mean, we really uh, are in this very special time right now. A lot of people would have said a few years ago, oh, well, you know, uh, those old cars, people aren't interested in them anymore. If it isn't a muscle car, they're not going to walk in the door. But a couple of great things happened that got kind of a new interest in uh, early automobiles. The movie Titanic had a huge effect on us. With that rear and O, yeah. The Dalton Abbey TV series, huge effect. And movies like The Great Gatsby. So suddenly kind of this period of time through popular culture has, you know, moved to the fore. And so now kids that probably would have been a little bit bored a few years ago looking at these cars come in and they relate them to, you know, having seen them in Downton Abbey or Great Gatsby or Titanic. Uh, they relate to the cars much more now. Roberto. They're really well, beautiful automobile. So, you know, when you really get up close to them and see all that gleaming brass, uh, they are impressive. Roberto, I'm, I hate to do this, but we're running out of time, and uh, I want to thank you and thank uh, the museum and the wonderful job that you all do up there, and I hope very soon that we can uh, get back up to Maine and, and visit with you and see your museum. It, it's, it's Your website's beautiful, and um, we do appreciate you being on today. Yes. Steve? Yeah, 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 please do, and let's get some of those cars rolling and come on some of our tours. Let's get them out on the road. Well, we'll do our best to do that, and uh, we'll roll out the red carpet when you guys come up to visit us. The lobster's on me. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could make that same offer to all the listeners, but do come and pay us a visit. You got it. All right. Thank you. Enjoyed it greatly. Bye. Thank you so much. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>